Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn along with me to the book of 2 Peter. We'll be continuing the series that we began last week. And so we'll be reading this morning from 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 12 through to the end of the chapter. 2 Peter chapter 1, from verse 12 to the end of the chapter, where Peter writes, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to at any time recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts." knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to blow all your minds this morning. Um, I was an extremely talkative child. (laughs) Any surprise that that this is where I ended up? Um, But but it it was such a consistent theme uh, I remember every parent-teacher meeting, it was, yeah, like, he, he's not a bad kid. He just talks way too much. Um, every report card, you know, the, the marks were fine, but it was always the feedback at the bottom, like, he needs to talk less. Um, and in fact, my, my mom and my wife were, were commiserating uh, a couple weeks back about how much I talk. And my mom shared a story that I didn't remember, which is that apparently I used to follow her around the house while she was like doing laundry, cleaning, making meals, whatever, and I would just talk. I would follow her everywhere she would go, and I would just keep talking to the point where she would apparently have to go, honey, mommy just needs five minutes. Can you go, go watch a clock, give mommy five minutes, and you can come and you can talk more. And within 30 seconds, I was going, Has it, it's been five minutes, right, mom? And I would just be right back going again. Um, and, you know, I, I would like to believe that, that once I had received this feedback from people, that at least for a time, I would try to talk a little bit less. Um, but eventually, those things would fade, and, and I would be prattling on once again. Not because I was a malicious or disobedient child, but, but simply because I forgot, right? That was naturally what I was like. And unless someone was going to keep telling me, it wasn't going to change. And, and parents, you know this, right? How many of you think that if you reminded your child of something one time, that that would actually be effective? How long would that reminder last? And I know we all like to laugh because, haha, kids, but we are the same way. Let, let's be honest, right? I, I still need these reminders today um, because to this day, I can, without realizing it, absolutely dominate conversations, which I'm sure sh- some of you have been on the receiving end of. I'm sorry. Um, and so, so to this day, I need reminders, and praise God for a wife who's willing to give them to me, because that has certainly spared some of your ears in the past. Um, But what we're going to see as we continue in 2 Peter this morning is that 
reminders play a key role in the life of Christians. And these reminders are good and beautiful insofar as they are grounded in God's revealed will. And I'm excited this morning because I get to make my Baptist forefathers proud and all my preaching profs from school. I have a three-point sermon, folks. So we have three points this morning. Reminders strengthen our faith. Our faith is based on facts, and the facts confirm God's word. Those are our three points this morning. So we'll begin with point one, reminders strengthen our faith. And I want to read the first three verses of our passage for you again. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Okay, so we're beginning on the word therefore, which means not surprisingly, Peter is continuing his thought from what we looked at last week. So just to kind of summarize all that again, either for those of you who weren't here or those of you who have forgotten because we're all forgetful, um, what we looked at last week is that in these first 11 verses, Peter teaches that the Lord Jesus, by his divine power, has granted us all we need for life and godliness. Therefore, we ought to live that out in virtue, in knowledge, in self-control, in steadfastness, in godliness, in brotherly affection, and in love. And if Christians are exhibiting and growing in these qualities, it confirms that they have been called by God to salvation, and it gives them assurance of the promise that they have a place in Christ's eternal kingdom. So that's where we're coming from, and now where he's going is that because of this reality— Peter wants to continually remind believers of these things. So we can see Peter is coming close to the end of his life. He's, he's older. And more than that, Peter is one of the few people who knew exactly how he was going to die because Jesus actually told him in John chapter 21. Speaking to Peter, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And so we understand that as him being, having his arms stretched out and being led to the cross, where, where Peter would also be crucified. So he knows that he's coming to the end of his life. But his goal, as he sits here writing this letter, is to remind these Christians so frequently of these truths that even after he is gone, they'll continue to recall them. They'll continue to live in light of them. And so there's, there's three truths, I think, in these verses that we should see. Firstly, we, we, need to, we need to know that Christians need reminders. We are forgetful, just like I was as a kid. In fact, I have heard this. I tried to hunt this down on the internet this week. I couldn't quite find it, so hopefully I'm remembering rightly. I have heard that a study found that by Tuesday morning, almost all of you will have forgotten almost everything that I say during this time. And I don't fault you for that. We are forgetful. But, but you'll notice that because of this reality, there are certain things that I try to repeat a lot. If you pay close attention to my preaching, you'll realize that in every single sermon, I am going to try to present the gospel, either in, in a shorter or a longer way. Because I really believe that if we aren't reminded of that core truth of the Christian faith, we're going to start to slide. We're going to slip. We're going to start to, to actually act like our works make us right before God. 
because that's how we're used to interacting with human beings, right? If you treat someone well, they treat you well back, usually. So we're used to that, so we have to be reminded that that's not how it works with God. If we aren't reminded of, of these core truths of the Christian faith, we're going to start to underemphasize sin and the need for a Savior, because that's a hard message. We don't like talking about it, but it's vital. We're going to start centering our Christian practice around simply doing good things rather than exalting Christ and making him known. And so reminders help keep us as Christians focused on the main things. You know, I'm really not sure if there's a such thing as a stagnant Christian. I really think, and I've seen this in myself and in others, that you're either growing or you're falling away. And that's just kind of the Christian life, is that we try to continue to grow. It's kind of like you're trying to walk up a down escalator. If you stop, if you take that break, we will always naturally go back to look more like ourselves before Christ. I've seen this in my own life. There there are sinful patterns that I feel like I really have a handle on. And then my personal devotions slip, my prayer life slips, and all of a sudden, these things are coming up again. I'm seeing these struggles again that I I hadn't seen in in months or years, and I'm, I'm noticing, oh no, I got lazy. And so I start regressing. I saw this more tragically with a good friend of mine from Bible school. We, we attended our first year together at Miller College of the Bible. I watched him grow throughout our first year together. And then he didn't return. He went to, to pursue a different degree. And I just watched as our friendship continued. I watched him get lax with his personal devotions. I watched him stop attending church with any level of consistency. I watched him start to reject the counsel of Christian friends, trying to draw him back. And then I I think he made an incredibly unwise decision to begin dating an unbeliever. And a couple of years later, we're four years removed from that now, he doesn't even call himself a Christian. He's completely left the faith. He removed himself piece by piece from every source of Christian reminder. Every person who could call him back, every place from which the Lord could speak to him to convict him of sin, he just got rid of them. But the reality is that we need reminders not just when we're falling away, but even when we are doing Well, even if we know things already, because Peter is clear here, these people already knew the things he was reminding them of. They were already established in them, but he was reminding them again because it was good for them to hear it again. So we shouldn't tire of hearing the beautiful realities of the Christian faith over and over and over because they are the only sure foundation that we have. Everything else is going to come and go, but the word of God remains forever. So we have to ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, are you intentional to put yourselves in places to hear these reminders? In your own personal personal devotions, your own prayer, are are you pursuing to, to find these reminders from God's word? Are you intentional to be part of this gathering? So much of what we do on Sunday morning is reminders. We we've sung four songs this morning. Was there any mind-blowing new truth that you realized from those four songs? Probably not. But every single one of them was a chance for us together to remind one another of what is true. We're calling one another to believe these things together. Even that I don't anticipate that I'm going to blow anybody's mind with this sermon, but I'm just reminding you of what is true, what God's word says. Just it keeps us focused. It keeps us going on the things that matter. Do you have friendships with other Christians where there's actually safety for them to call out sin? For them to come to you and say, do you know what, I think you need to be reminded of these verses. I think you're missing this. I'm seeing these patterns in you. But why are these reminders so important? What do they help with? And I think Peter is showing us 
that, that they're important because reminders stir up our faith. That's what he says to them. He wants to remind them as a way to stir them up. He's not just kind of repeating these ideas again and again to check a box. This isn't religious repetition. It's not saying a prayer enough times and hoping that that's going to work out well. It's being reminded so that these ideas, these truths would penetrate deeply into us and would shape us. They would shape what comes out. And remember, he is specifically reminding them of these qualities that Christians should exhibit in their lives. Virtue, self-control, brotherly affection, love, these things, and the promises of God that come through faith in Jesus. These are the things that he wants to keep on their minds all the time. So let's think about those three categories we brought up a moment ago. Are you using those places as, as places to be stirred up? Or are you just kind of trying to check the box? You know, if you're reading God's word for yourself and you come across uh, a command or a passage that you don't like, do you ignore it? Do you? And, and I will admit, I have done this before. Do you like go online and try to find some interesting interpretation of the verse so that you can get away from what it's clearly saying that you have to do because it just rubs against yourself? It doesn't feel right? Or do you submit to God's word? Do you, do you go to it and say, you get to stand in judgment over me. I don't get to stand in judgment over you. Or, or when we sing on a Sunday morning, you know, are, are you engaging with the songs as a way to be reminded? Are you understanding your role in singing to remind the others around you about what is true? Or, or when, the, when the preacher says things you don't like, do you, first of all, like, like the Bereans in the book of Acts, do you make sure what the preacher is saying is true? Because that's important. You know, check every word I say against scripture. If it doesn't line up, throw it out. But once that has happened, at that point then, do you go, okay, I'm putting myself under God's word. When you have friends who, who point out patterns of sin, who, who try to call you to repentance, do you become defensive and proud? Or do you willingly humble yourself and receive that from them? Receive that, that they are seeing a blind spot that you might not be seeing. Or more than that, do you actually ask your friends actively to do that? That's a hard thing. That's a scary thing. But, but to have those people in your life who will look for those blind spots for you, who will say, hey, you know, I, I don't think you realize how unkind you are in your speech towards people. You know, I, I don't think you realize how selfishly you behave in these ways. And to remind you of what we are called to as Christians. I, I really think the North American church has made Christianity far too solitary, right? We, we are obsessed, and in part rightly so, with our personal relationship with Jesus, which is a good thing, We've got to realize that the New Testament doesn't really understand Christians as just being solitary individuals. It understands us as being a body, as being a family, being brought together to serve one another, to encourage one another, to challenge one another, to love and look like Jesus Christ. Yes, we are individuals, but we are all collectively Christ's bride, the church who he brings to himself. As I was thinking about this this week, I thought back to Genesis chapter 4. Right? Most of you probably remember the story, Cain and Abel. These two brothers, they make sacrifices to God. Cain's sacrifice is not good. God doesn't approve of it. Cain gets mad, murders his brother Abel. That's a right response. Um, God comes to Cain and goes, you know, God knows, but he's giving him a chance to fess up. Cain, where is your brother? And Abel's response is, well, am I my brother's keeper? To which the Christian's answer is yes. Yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. We bear the responsibility to love and, and spur one another on to greater maturity. And Peter understands and lives that out too. Because the last thing I think we see in this section is that Peter was a dying man writing to people who he dearly loved. And his final goal here 
was to instill in them Christian truth. Right? So he's writing, so that after my departure, you may be able to tell others about my care for you. Not what he says. So that you may be able to remember how much I did for you guys. Nope, not what he says. So that you might remember and be able to tell others how important I was to the church of Jesus Christ. Nope, not his goal. He is wanting to leave them as more mature Christians, which is a good reminder and challenge for us. I mean, I would think first of parents. Are you, are you understanding and working hard in your role to disciple your kids? I mean, we live in a really cool era in church history. The church has programs, right? You can drop your kids off here. You can drop your youth off here. And, and we want to help you in that discipleship. But we cannot be the primary disciplers of your kids. We just don't spend enough time with them. And so are you bearing that weight to, to be the one to pass on these reminders to them? Christians in general, I mean, are we doing anything we can to help stir up our brothers and sisters onto maturity? Or, or are we just kind of happy to, to stay at the surface, right? Just to keep our relationship shallow so that nobody really sees what's wrong with me and I can just kind of stuff that down and we can talk about the weather and the Jets game and it'll all be okay. Uh, or do we really desire to use this as a place from which God can use our brothers and sisters to grow us because we know we need it. I think maybe the bigger overarching question here is are you living your life to leave a legacy for your name or for the name of Jesus Christ? There's a Christian leader in the 1700s with an absolutely incredible name, Nicholas von Zinzendorf, who famously said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Now, to be clear, being remembered is not a bad thing, right? I mean, one of the greatest sources of reminders that we have to this day is the story of faithful Christians from the past. I've been, I've been reading a lot of Christian biography lately, and I think that has done more than pretty much any other reading I've done to convict me of sin, to, to show me actually how much my faith wavers. As I read the stories of, of men and women who died for this, who were burned at the stake for this truth, that'll stir you up. That will be that source of reminder. So being, being remembered is not a bad thing. But what is a bad thing is if you wouldn't be okay with this reality, a reality where nobody remembers your name, but they remember the Christian truths that you proclaimed. Right? We should be a people who would be happy to be forgotten if people remembered our God. This sacrifice of our own legacy, though, it's only worth making if our faith is true. And Peter is confident that it is. It's point two this morning. Our faith is based on facts. Second Peter, verses 16 to 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Okay, so what is Peter talking about? Um, firstly, I, I think we can be pretty confident that the we he is talking about is the apostles, right? These, these men, these earliest disciples of Jesus on whom the foundations of the Christian church were built, the ones who gave us the vast majority of our New Testament, the, the ones who really established the church in its earliest days. So these are the we. And then what he's doing is he is recounting a story that we can actually read about in the Gospels. So this is recorded both in Mark 9 and in Matthew 17. I want to look at Matthew's account here in Matthew chapter 17. This is the story of the transfiguration of Jesus. 
So it reads, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So, so in this moment, Peter, James, and John are given a glimpse of Christ's glory. I think we really can understand this as them almost getting uh, an, early, an early sight at what it's going to be like when Christ comes back his second time, shining with glory, right? Just a, a light. That's, that's the best description that the apostles have to try to understand what it was they saw, just this brilliant picture of Christ in his glory, a voice from heaven coming down and saying, this is my son, That's pretty helpful. That'll give you the answer to the question if you don't know it yet. Confirming Christ's sonship, confirming his divinity. And so Peter's point here is that these reminders that he is passing on to these believers and really the whole teaching of the apostles, the New Testament, these are not just cleverly devised myths, right? This isn't like the Greek gods supposedly on the top of Mount Olympus, like we can go to the top of Mount Olympus. There's, there's nobody up there, right? Those were myths. But the apostles' message is based on eyewitness testimony to the Son of God being declared in glory. They were confident that Jesus is the Messiah, not because he deceived them, but because they saw things that no human being could possibly have done. They heard a voice from heaven confirming that this was the Son of God. So, so really, the apostolic faith, the, the Christian faith, it's grounded in history. It's grounded in fact. It's grounded in the testimony of eyewitnesses. And the gospel message that they proclaimed, right, this message that, that we were created to, to love and be in relationship with God, but through our sin we broke that relationship, that he in his justice has every right to send us to hell because he is just that holy and we are that fallen, But in his mercy, he sent his son to obey like we should have, to die so that we wouldn't have to. So by putting our faith in him, we would be brought back into right relationship with a perfect God. But Jesus didn't stay dead, right? He rose from the dead. He confirmed the validity of this message. This whole gospel message, it's it's grounded in a three-day period in human history. Right? Friday, Jesus goes up on the cross and he dies. He's buried. Saturday, he is in the tomb. And Sunday morning, he gets out of it. And there's witnesses. Paul says that there are 500 people when he's writing to others who saw Jesus after he had raised, risen, been risen, raised, rose, rise, I don't know, from the dead. But that's important. He, he's writing this to contemporaries and he's saying, there are 500 people. Go ask others. I'm not just making this up. I wasn't just deceived. 500 other people have seen this man alive who you saw die on the cross. It's grounded in history. By making this point, Peter is making clear that Christian teaching didn't develop by like, you know, some, some wise man like walking into a cave and sitting down and just meditating and then starting to write and hoping that he got it right. The Christian teaching was delivered to the apostles 
by the mouth of God, by Jesus, the the God-man. And it was further revealed to them by the Holy Spirit, and they wrote it down for us to receive it. Our faith is a grounded faith. It's not built on the ideas and meditations of humanity, but on the clearly revealed word of God. And it is these grounded truths that Peter believes Christians ought to be reminded of, right? It's not simply the passing on of good advice, how to live a more fulfilled life, how to be happier, how to raise better kids. That's not what he's interested in. He's interested in the core truths of Christianity being passed on because that is what God has given. But as he continues, it's clear that Peter doesn't only have in mind the teaching of the apostles, but he also has in mind the whole Old Testament. So our final point this morning, the facts confirm God's word. Verses 19 through 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That first statement he makes is really, really important. Peter heard a voice from heaven declaring that Jesus was the Son of God. But but realize, he doesn't say that that is what confirmed the prophetic word of the Old Testament for him. He says that that more confirmed it. In Peter's mind, before Jesus was even on the scene, the word of God was confirmed. It didn't matter that it hadn't happened yet. He was confident that because God had said this Messiah was coming, he was coming. And the voice from heaven more confirmed it in Peter's mind, but his faith was such that he was ready to wait. Even even if it wouldn't have been in his lifetime, he knew the word of God, it's confirmed. It's happening. This is is something that I might lose a couple of you on because it's annoying and it's about grammar, but I find it interesting and I'm not going super long today, so I'm going to take this chance. So in English, uh, we can use verbs in three ways, in the past tense, in the present tense, and in the future tense, right? I ran, I am running, I will run. That's how our language works. In Hebrew, the, the language that the entire Old Testament was written in, their verbs work a little bit differently. So they only have two tenses. They have perfect tense, which means the action is completed, it's done, it's finished, And they have imperfect verbs, which means the action is yet to be finished. All that to say, when God delivers prophecies in the Old Testament, sometimes he delivers them through the mouth of his prophets using perfect tense verbs. He tells them about future events using the language of things that have already been accomplished. A good example of this in a passage that many of you would be familiar with is Isaiah 53. Right, This was written... 700 years or so before Jesus actually came. But the translators capture this well. Listen to the language here. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 700 years before Jesus, he hadn't done any of these things yet, but the Holy Spirit inspired Isaiah to write them using verbs of completed actions. 
This is settled in the mind of God. This is what is going to happen, and it doesn't matter that you're waiting 700 years. It is done. It is happening. And so we see that when God speaks, it is true and it is sure. It is confirmed before it even comes to pass. And this is really exciting for us because there are promises in Scripture that have not yet been fulfilled. There are things that we are still looking forward to as Christians, and we can have just as much confidence as Peter did. When God speaks, it is going to happen. So later in the series, in 2 Peter 3, Howard's going to preach to us about the day of the Lord, this day that we look forward to when Christ returns. But what we should see today, here, in what Peter is saying, is that we still need the Old Testament. There's a very prominent evangelical pastor who, I think it was about a couple years ago, said that we as Christians must unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. I have no idea how he came to that conclusion. Uh, he's wrong. It is simply impossible. Peter disagrees, as we can see here. He's looking at the Old Testament and saying, you need this to understand. And logic itself wouldn't allow that. Because without the Old Testament, we would have no way of knowing that Jesus was actually who he said he was. Because hear me out. There are plenty of people in human history who have managed to amass really big followings. People can do that. There are, there are plenty of people in history who have done things that seemed miraculous. There are plenty of people in human history who have died because they upset political and religious authorities. These aren't rare things. There are even plenty of people who have claimed to be God. These are not rare things to claim, but there is not a single individual in human history who did all of those things while perfectly fulfilling every single Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah. Not a single individual except for Jesus of Nazareth. Because here's the reality. If he had failed on one of those prophecies, right? If you can go into the Old Testament and you can show me one prophecy about the Messiah that he did not fulfill, I'll stop being a Christian. Because that means one of two things. Either it means God was wrong, in which case it's not a very powerful God, or it means Jesus wasn't the Messiah because he failed to, to keep what God said the Messiah would. There'd be no point in continuing to be a Christian if Jesus had failed on even one prophecy. But he didn't. He fulfilled every single one of them, and that is evidence that cannot be ignored. And so because it is the Old Testament that confirms for us that Jesus is who he said he was, we must cling to it. Right? And I have no doubt that Peter would understand the New Testament as the continuation of that prophetic word. You know, we have this break in our Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. We put that there. It makes it easier to navigate. The reality is, all of this together is God's word. It's his revealed word for us. And so what we must hear Peter saying is that we as Christians must pay close attention to God's word. And his illustration is really helpful. He's talking about it like it's, it's a lamp. It's the only source of light, right? The idea here is it's like humans are groping around in the darkness, trying to, to see the world, but they can't. It's pitch black. And so they, they grab around and they, they, they kind of can sort of figure out what this is and they maybe have an idea of that, but they can't see the whole picture. They can't see at all. But then the word of God comes in like a lamp. And so now... It's still dark everywhere else, but, but you hold up the lamp, and all of a sudden, things start to take shape. You start to be able to see, oh, oh, that's what this actually is. Okay, now I understand, you know, oh, why is the world so broken? Okay, well, uh, groping around in the darkness, I can't see, but you hold up the lamp of God's word, and you see, oh, 
Sin broke it. This was not God's original creation, but you can't see that without the revealed word of God. And now, our responsibility as Christians is to live by this light, the light of God's word, until the sun rises at Christ's second coming. That's the language here, right? The day is going to dawn. For now, we're walking around with lamps in the darkness, but the day is coming. The sun is going to rise and all the darkness will be driven out. Evil is going to be crushed, defeated. It will be done when Christ returns. But until that day, we have one lamp, one light by which we can continue to see and discern what is going on because the world is nuts. But why the Bible, right? That's an important question. What makes this book so special? Why is this the one that we as Christians believe is the one that we have to hold to? And Peter, I think in, in helping us answer this question, makes one of the most important statements for our understanding of Scripture, right? He says that, that all the prophecies of the Old Testament came about not by someone like looking at the world around them and trying to figure out what is going on, right? So, so Isaiah did not write Isaiah 53 by sitting down and going, how, how is God going to solve this problem? How is sin going to be done away with? And then kind of thinking about it hard and writing it, of course he didn't do that. Jeremiah 31, where we see the prophecy of the new covenant, something that we celebrate at the Lord's table here in just a few minutes. Jeremiah was not meditating in a cave somewhere. We're back in the cave, um, trying to, to answer the question of how is God going to bring his people into relationship with him? No. If you want to go down a, a really crazy and fun rabbit hole this afternoon, uh, look up the way that the book of Daniel prophesies the, the conquerings of Alexander the Great. It's absolutely insane. The Bible prophesied about historical events that we are certain of their happening. Daniel was not sitting somewhere going, how would a general conquer most of the known world? How would he do that? And then writing out what he thought would happen. Every one of these men had these things revealed to them by God. No biblical author could force God to reveal these things. He did it when he wanted, in his timing, with the words he wanted to. None of them could just write what they felt like writing. That wasn't their job. But every single one of them, Peter says, were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write these things for us as Christians. So this is our Bible, right? It's not just a bunch of religious musings. It is the words of the God of the universe. And for this reason, it is the place that Christians must go the reminders that are going to keep us going in a hostile world. It is our source of truth. It is our source of strength because it reveals to us who our God is and what he has done and what he calls us to. Because here's, here's really where it all ends. We don't have a God who has hidden himself from us, right? That feels very normal to us because we're Christians. That's the message that we are used to hearing. But that's actually kind of crazy when you think about it. Why would, would God have to do that? Well, he wouldn't, right? So we, we don't believe in a God who just kind of set the world in motion and eh, see how it goes for them, see if they can figure out how to please me without me saying anything. That's not the God that we have. He's not hostile. He's not expecting things from us arbitrarily. Rather, we have a God who has made himself known. He has spoken through his Holy Spirit, carrying along regular men to write out what we needed to know to know him, to understand the world, to, to understand how it is that, that we can be faithful to him. And so the response then that we need to have 
is to draw near, right? We need to, to hear the precious words of God as we study and meditate upon the scriptures. We need to see how beautiful our God is in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the exact representation of his nature, as we read about who he was and what he did in the scriptures. We need to hold to this as the only lamp, shining in an incredibly dark world as we await the dawning of the brilliance of the sun. In all his glory, when he returns. And here's the thing, it is certain because God's word is certain. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would guard us from taking this gift for granted. You have spoken clearly in your word, and and you tell us that it is living and active, that it still speaks today. So, Father, let us be a people who trust you when you say that, who, who treat your revealed word like the gift that it is, who hunger to know it, to know what you have done for us, to know what you have promised us, to know how it is that we can be faithful to you. And Lord, as we pursue you in your word, turn us into a people who are faithful in reminding one another of the truth that we are seeing in it, that we would be stirring one another up, that we would be exhorting one another, we would be calling one another away from sin and back to you, But Father, ground us deeply in your word that you would guard us from our own opinions, from our own biases, but that we would submit ourselves fully to all that it says. We would be faithful to you, faithful to Christ, and we would worship him rightly for what he has done. Amen.